Father, Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to be here tonight. Lord, we thank you for uh, the many things that you've done for us, the many blessings you've given us. We praise you for this opportunity to together and to sing praises to you and to worship you and to hear from your word. Lord, as we open, open your word, Lord, we pray that you would teach us tonight. Bless each one that's here. Bless those who could not be here. And we thank you for all that you do, for all that you are for us in Jesus Christ, our salvation, our redemption, our Savior, our Redeemer. Father, you have done so much for us, and we pray that you would be honored and glorified tonight. We thank you. We praise you for all that you do. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Let's give them another hand for leading us in worship this evening. Most of them have already exited. For Shauna for bringing me a table. Thank you. Showing the guys up. She brought me the table all by herself. Um, open your Bibles to First Peter tonight. My name is Pastor Ryan. Pastor Mike's on vacation. So I know that a lot of you are here for fireworks tonight, but we're going to do a little Bible study before we get into that. And we're going to go to um, one of the small letters at the end of the New Testament, the first letter of the Apostle Peter, First Peter. It's going to be in chapter 2 specifically. So uh, don't forget to stick around a little bit after uh, the church. We'll be shooting some fireworks off and having some refreshments and other things outside. We can also, as you go throughout the rest of your week this week, pray for uh, Pastor Ken and the other and the kids and adults who will be going to camp uh, this coming next week. Um, they'll be leading for Center Kids, so you can pray for them and their week of camp that they're going to be having. So there's a lot still going on, a lot of summer still to be had around First Baptist Church. So we we just ask you to be in prayer uh, for those things. So First Peter chapter two verses four through ten specifically. And if you don't have a sheet, there are some still left. There should be a uh, this that you have to fill in a few blanks. And as we go along, and I'll uh, give you the answers to those as we go, but uh, this is the outline for tonight. And so there's a there's a deep sense, when you look at the New Testament, there's a deep sense that Christ is doing something something new, right? That he's, he's doing something new. His whole ministry demonstrated this, his demonstration of miracles, uh, his control over nature, uh, his authority over demons, uh, the way that he taught, his preaching about the kingdom as having come and his declarations about himself, all speak to the fact that Christ was doing something new. When he came, he was instituting something new, initiating something new. And we also know this because he spoke to Peter about it in Matthew chapter 16. You don't have to turn there. It's a very familiar passage of Scripture. Matthew 16, verses 13 through 20 is the conversation that Jesus has with his disciples. And he asked him a couple of very important questions. You know, he first of all, he asked the disciples who people say that he is. And they give a few answers, but none of them are who Jesus actually is. Some say, well, he's a prophet or he's John the Baptist or he's Elijah. And he isn't any of those things. He's the one that all of those proclaim about. Then he gets to the heart of the matter in verse 15. It says, but who do you say that I am? And he's speaking to his disciples and Peter as usual, is the one to speak up. And he says, well, you're the Christ, you're the Messiah, you're the Son of the living God. And Jesus affirms Peter's confession, but he also reveals to Peter that Peter didn't come up with this on his own, that heaven, that God revealed it to him and that it had been given to him by God. So then our passage, in this, for our passage tonight, Jesus makes this astonishing statement. So this is what we're talking about, because we're going to be talking about the church as the new spiritual temple and as the new people of God and as Christ as a living stone and as the church as living stones, which is this imagery this, this, uh, that Peter uses in this passage to talk about the church and to talk about Jesus. And Jesus says this to Peter after he makes this confession. 
Jesus says, you are Peter, whose name means rock, and upon this rock I will build my church. And so Christ is indicating what work he is doing, right? He's building something new. Namely, he is building on a new foundation, a new building on a new foundation, which is very important for our talk tonight. So remember that Jesus indicated to Peter that he's building something new and he's building it on a new foundation. So Peter was a rock and many like him and those who confess the same thing that Peter confessed, that Christ was the Messiah, that Christ is going to build something upon that confession. And so when Jesus uses the term rock, when he says upon this rock, he's using a Greek term, Petra, that conveys the idea of this large, craggy rock. It's the same term that Jesus actually used in Matthew chapter 7, verse 25, when he spoke about a wise man building his house upon a rock. And it's so it's the same Greek term, and it's referring to stable ground, bedrock or foundation that Christ is saying, build your house on this. Don't build it on the sand, build it on the rock, build it on the Petra. And he uses the same term to talk about his building of the church. So in the passage we're going to examine tonight, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 10, which we'll read in just a second, we'll see that Peter is using this metaphor in other Old Testament passages to say that the church is a new spiritual temple being built upon the foundation or the rock of Christ. And so tonight I want to dig deep into that. We're going to do, going to do just plain old Bible study tonight. We're going to dig deep into just a few verses of Scripture And I want to do some biblical theology and kind of show you all how Peter used the Old Testament, how he interpreted it in light of who Jesus was, because Jesus taught him to interpret it that way as one of his inner circle of disciples. And I think it illustrates for us how that we can read the Old Testament and how we can apply it to our lives too. I often say that when, and I've read in a lot that you have, when you read the Old Testament as New Testament believers, we have the New Testament, we know who Jesus is, we know what he's done for us, and when we read the Old Testament, we read it through the lens of the new. We read it through the lens of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. And so that's what we're going to do tonight. And so uh, let's read this passage, and then I want to give a little bit of context to it, and then we're going to dive into these few verses. So 1 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 4. And as you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious... You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you, as sojourners and exiles, to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So that's our passage for tonight. It actually, I think it's printed on your paper to go through verse 10, but we're going to go through verse 12 um, and hit just a little bit from those last two verses there. 
But a little bit of context to First Peter. So Peter uh, begins this letter by indicating that he's writing to address those who are elect exiles in the dispersion. And if you look early in the first chapter, you'll see that. That's the audience. Who are the elect exiles in dispersion? So the Christians that Peter was writing to were scattered over a wide area of Asia Minor. So they're, they're largely Gentiles. There may be some Jewish Christians there, but they're largely Gentiles. And they had a common faith and they faced common persecution as other believers elsewhere. And Peter's purpose was to help them see their sufferings. That's one of the major components of Peter's letter is to help them see their sufferings as temporary in light of who Jesus is and in light of what he's doing and in light of what he's, in this case, building with the church. He wanted them to understand that the sovereign God is going to keep them. He's going to enable them by faith to have joy. In the midst of all this, he's going to enable them to thrive and to find joy. And Christ was their pattern for this because how he dealt with suffering is how the church should also deal with suffering, persecution, mocking. In chapter 1, Peter says that by mercy, Christ calls them to be born again into a living hope, which is a key phrase here too. He calls them to be born into a living hope. We have a hope in something that's living, not something that's dead, not something that might happen, but something that will happen. It's a living hope. So Peter recognizes that they live in a pagan society, but he calls for them to be holy. And that's in chapter 1, verses 15 and 16, to be humble and to be submissive. And there was no doubt that persecutions for the church were numerous. And, you know, it, it can be debated under which emperor that the persecution of the church was happening under at this point in time, because most people believe Peter's letter was probably written. Um, he, he died in the 60s, early 60s A.D., and so it was probably written before that. And um, But there's no doubt that what Peter foresaw unfolding for the church was a time of, of deep suffering, of deep persecution, of unfavorable, definitely going to be unfavorable for the church. So no matter where they were in the Roman Empire or who was spurring on the persecution, the church was going to be in for hard times during this period. And one commentator said that the general ordeal is in the complete lack of security, which exposed Christians... Think about this. It exposed Christians at any moment and in any part of the empire, which it was a very big empire, to slander, defamation of character, boycott, mob violence, even death. They were, or at any time or place might be, hated of all men for Christ's sake. Society was inhospitable and the world unjust. Has it changed very much for God's people? Do we recognize that it's always been that way for God's people and it probably always will be until Christ comes back? And so that's the kind of, that's what Peter's speaking into in this, um, for this church. And as one can imagine, becoming a new follower of Christ in this type of society, in this Roman Empire, which at first didn't think much of the church, but as they began to grow, grow and affect the economy of the Roman Empire, as people began, got saved and turned to Jesus and stopped buying idols and supporting the local economy, that's when the Romans turned their attention to the church and started persecuting them. But as, as you can imagine, it was hard to be a follower of Jesus. It put one at odds just about every institution around them. And Peter was helping them navigate this upheaval in their lives. Peter spends much of uh, chapter 1 reminding them of this living hope and the salvation that they have in Christ. Verses 10 through 12, which are going to be very important for us tonight, uh, reminded the people that they had experienced a salvation that even prophets had longed to look into, that they had searched, that they had inquired about in chapter 1, verses 10 through 12. And so Peter encourages them to be sober-minded, to set their hope fully on the grace that's brought to them at the second coming at the revelation of Jesus Christ in verse 13. And he calls for them to, again to live holy lives and reminded them that they had been what they had been ransomed from. They had been ransomed from futile ways, from things that can't save and things that cannot satisfy. Not by earthly means. They weren't saved by silver or gold, but by the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
in verses 18 and 19. And then he draws their attention in verse 20 to the fact that this salvation that they experienced was part of the eternal divine plan of God. His plan to redeem them by the blood of Jesus, foreknown from the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of the church. Therefore, he tells them to love one another and to live life in light of these truths. And then chapter 2 begins with this put away all malice and evil deceit and hypocrisy, envy and slander. He's saying, put all these things away from you. That's not who you are anymore. That may be how the world treats you, but that's not who you are as the new people of God. And like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk of God's word. Why? So that they can grow up into salvation. And so they long for the word, they're to long for the word so that they can grow up, so that they can mature spiritually. And the old, the old testament quotations that we're going to be examining tonight, which first Peter is chock full of old testament allusions and quotations. Peter uses the old testament like a scholar in this, in this letter. And a lot of times it's easy to miss it if you don't have a, a good, what pastor uh, refers to as cross-reference notes in your Bible to be able to connect the dots to where Peter's going um, with his argument here. But the Old Testament quotations that we're examining, specifically three, are found in verses 6 through 8. And this come in the midst of Peter using kind of this stone or this rock imagery, which is found other in other places in Scripture, to remind them that, that, the, that the church are living stones being built upon the spiritual house, in verse 5, uh, of Christ, the living stone, to remind them that their deep connection to Jesus, who is the living stone. So it's this connection to Christ, the cornerstone, that will sustain them during these trials, during these persecutions that they're going to face, and they will face them. And so 1 Peter 10 through 12 kind of sets the stage for Peter's use of the Old Testament. So I just real brief wanted to hit that before we look at our verses tonight. Um, in, in, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 12, if you flip back a little bit, in that passage you see that he views the prophets as having prophesied about the grace that we receive as through the Lord Jesus Christ, the grace by which we're saved, that this grace that we have received, it was prophesied about, about the grace that was to be yours. They searched, they inquired about it, the Old Testament prophets um, looked into it. And speaking about the Old Testament prophets, Peter saw them as writing about what Christ would bring. As about writing about what Christ would bring. He saw the Old Testament as looking forward to the time of Jesus being fulfilled during the time of Jesus. And even if they, even if the prophets didn't know exactly how that was going to happen, they were speaking about Christ. They'd ask questions like, who, who will this Messiah be? When will he come? What kind of sufferings will he endure? How will he be glorified? And verse 12 is striking in chapter 1 because he says that the prophets knew that they weren't mainly serving themselves, which is a pretty bold claim for Peter to make. He knew that they were not serving themselves, nor maybe the people during their time, but those who would come during the time and after the time of the Messiah, which was Jesus. So the things that they announced, the things that the Old Testament prophets announced about Jesus have now been proclaimed to the church in Peter's time. They have the gospel. It's being proclaimed to them. People are being saved. People are coming into the church. And one author says it this way, Peter is preparing his audience for his heavy use of the Old Testament to help his readers, which was their Bible, right? The Old Testament was the Bible of the early New Testament church. They did not have the letters of Paul, the letters of Peter, the letters of John. There was a few things circulating, but there was no collection like what we have in the New Testament today. There was not the four Gospels to compare with each other. There was not the full um, canon of Paul's letters that we can look at and, and, and get teaching from those 
They just had bits and pieces. They had creeds. They had confessions about who Jesus was and what he had done. And so when Peter's addressing the church, he's doing what what a good pastor and a good preacher and a good apostle would have done during that time. He's taking the scripture of his time, the Old Testament, and he's teaching them about Jesus through the Old Testament. He's preparing his audience for his use of Old Testament scriptures to help his readers understand their own place and the place of their sufferings and the purpose and the plan of God. And he's doing this by showing the link between Christians and Christ with special reference to Christian suffering. So if Christian prophets were, um, and they are in view here, um, the, the, there was people in the, in the New Testament and in the Old Testament who both spoke to these truths from Christ, but the Old Testament formed the foundation. So the vast majority of the Old Testament citations um, are viewed in light of who Jesus is, his coming uh, life, death, resurrection, glorification, and even his return. All of these things. So Peter is laying out in verses 10 through 12 um, his goal for the whole letter. He's interpreting and he's applying the Old Testament to these church, to these suffering saints in the first century, and he's speaking to them in light of who Jesus is. He's using the prophets and, te- and interpreting them in light of Jesus for the church. So in the passage we're looking at, verses 4 through 8 in chapter 2, the three quotations that Peter uses are being interpreted in light of who Jesus was, and they're being plied, applied in light of who of the whole redemptive context of Scripture. Uh, and Peter views the prophets as these Old Testament spokesmen who are pursuing meaning in their own prophetic writings to know all they could about what God had promised His church in Jesus Christ. And so now we turn to our verses here, verses 4, specifically 4 through 10. And again, I said these, these verses, it's one of the most dense passages in the New Testament when it comes to its use of the Old Testament because a lot of what Peter alludes to or quotes directly in these few verses, comes from the Old Testament. Um, Isaiah, it comes from Isaiah, it comes from Hosea, it comes from the Psalms. And we don't need to leave the Psalms out when we talk about prophetic things, by the way, because there was a lot of messianic Psalms, a lot of Psalms that talked about who Jesus was, that prophesied what he would do, that predicted his sufferings as well. So the Psalms are not just a songbook, they're also works of prophecy. They're prophetic, they tell us a lot about Jesus. But all the quotations that Peter uses are found in other places also in the New Testament. Um, for instance, we're using three quotations tonight. Isaiah 8.14, uh, Psalm 118.22, and then Isaiah 28.16 are the three specific verses that we're looking at tonight that Peter quotes to get his point across to the church. And all of those, are, again, are used in other places in the New Testament. Um, Isaiah 8.14 was also used in Luke 2.34, Isaiah 28.16 was also quoted in Romans 9.33 and 10.11. Psalm 118.22 was also quoted by Peter in his preaching in Acts 4.11. And so this this stone imagery that Peter is using is common in Scripture. And again, Peter probably learned it from Jesus because Jesus taught the Old Testament to them. And they're teaching it to their church. And so... Um, Peter, in verse 4 and 5, he introduces this stone imagery that he's going to be talking about. He's going to be building his point on that the church is a new spiritual temple in Christ and that the church is also a new people of God in Christ. So in these verses, in verses 4 and 5, he refers to Christ as a living stone and to the church as living stones. And he is emphasizing that Christ is this long-awaited cornerstone. Right Upon this cornerstone... Jesus was building something new. He was building a new spiritual house 
I'm not making these up. That's exactly how Peter is describing it. You yourselves are like living stones being built up as a spiritual house. And he's also calling and he's ordaining a new priesthood, if you look there. That they're not only a, um, a new spiritual house, but they're a new holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So 1 Peter 2, 4, again, presents Christ as this living stone. And there's a lot of evidence that this, again, the stone imagery was used as a messianic title among both Jews and Christians. Um, Daniel chapter 2 is another place, if you want to look at another place in the Old Testament, where Jesus the Messiah is referred to as a stone. If you'll remember in the vision that Nebuchadnezzar had of the statue um, in Daniel chapter 2, and Daniel's interpreting the dream for him, at the end of this dream, as, as Daniel's interpreting what each level of the statue means, and it represents a nation that was going to come after Babylon, and all of them were going to rule over the people of God, but there all of a sudden was a, a huge mountain, a huge stone that come and it crushed the statue, and in the place of a stone grew a huge mountain. And there's a lot of allusions as we look at this that Daniel is saying that, that Christ was the stone that crushed the statue. He's the stone that came and ruled and crushed the empires of the world and will one day come again and crush the empires of the world and establish his kingdom here on earth. And so there's a lot of places in the Old Testament that alludes to this. But Christ was, according to Peter, he was a living stone. He was rejected by men, but he was chosen and precious to God. So Christ was this foreordained stone, this stone who is living, not only because Jesus became flesh and blood, he, he lived in, as a person, but also because he was raised from the dead and he dies no more. He's still living. He was living, he died, but he rose again and he's still living. So he's a living stone. So in choosing Jesus as the cornerstone through his resurrection, God, even though Christ had been rejected by man, God was overruling their opinion of Jesus, and he was declaring his acceptance of Christ. And so in verse 5, Peter says he refers to the church as living stones who are being built up into a spiritual house upon the living stone he just talked about in verse 4. These are the ones who have come to Christ. They've been drawn to this stone. They've been built up into this new eschatological temple and Peter refers to the church in two ways here. He says that they're a holy priesthood and they're a spiritual house offering up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And so Peter is teaching that the church is that end times people of God, the participants of this new covenant, they're sealed with the blood of Jesus. And so the conclusion being drawn from this passage is that while Peter is employing this Old Testament imagery to describe the church as a temple, as a priesthood, uh, offering spiritual sacrifices that link the church back to Old Testament Israel, his description of the nature um, of the New Covenant community is very different. It's new, right? Because these are people not coming to a priest, but coming to a stone, to a living stone, through this stone, offering sacrifices that are actually acceptable to God through Christ. And they're not animals, they're not bulls and goats, and pigeons and all, all that that you read about in the Old Testament. They're spiritual sacrifices. They're the offering of themselves, spiritual deeds, spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God because they're done and they're built upon the stone who is Jesus Christ. So Peter is setting up his quotes here. So the church are living stones being built upon the foundation of Christ, the living stone, and the church is now this localized manifestation of God's presence on earth. So if you want to see what God is like, the church is supposed to be a representative of who He is and what He's doing. So God's Spirit 
no longer inhabits a building in Jerusalem, right? He indwells each believer individually, but he also indwells his church corporately. So not only is the church this new spiritual temple, but believers are part of this new order of priest. So let's get to verses six through eight real quick, because I really want to hit these tonight and show you how Peter uses the Bible of his day, the Old Testament, to teach his people about who Jesus is and what he's done. So in, in, uh, so by the way, your first blank, uh, in point number one, the new temple consists of the living stone and living stones. And then the uh, B, it was the, the church. The church are living stones. And so in point number two, Christ is the cornerstone of the new temple. He's the cornerstone of the new temple. Um, he's the chosen cornerstone. In point number A, under two, he is the chosen cornerstone. So this is a quote of Isaiah chapter 28, verse 16, that Christ is the cornerstone of this new temple. He is the, so what is a cornerstone? Is it a, is it a foundational stone or is it a capstone? A lot of, a lot of times in uh, architecture back then, they would have a stone that would kind of sit in the middle of an archway or an entryway that would support it in the middle. Um, so what is the cornerstone that's being talked about here? Um, by definition, if you look at it, if you, especially if you look at what the, the next few verses say about the stone, that it's going to be an offense to some, that it's going to be a stum- stumbling block to some, um, it's probably referring to a key foundational piece in the ground that the rest of the building was built upon. Um, and that's what we would be referring to here as a cornerstone. Uh, it's a foundational cornerstone um, that the house would be built upon. So a little bit of the uh, the context here of Isaiah 28, um, it falls into this, Isaiah 28 is a, it falls into this segment of Isaiah's prophecy known as woe prophecies, or judgment oracles, um, describing the coming judgment against um, the people of Israel and against other nations. Um, and the woe chapters 28 through 31 in Isaiah, and then in chapter 33. But specifically, Isaiah is prophesying judgment that's coming from the northern kingdom of Israel, referring which he refers to in in his in Isaiah's prophecy as Ephraim, and Isaiah is saying Ephraim is going to be trodden underfoot. So basically, God's going to judge the northern kingdom by the by the invasion of Assyria. If you know Israel's history, you know that Israel split into two nations. The northern ten tribes formed the nation of Israel, which sometimes was referred to as Ephraim in the Bible in prophecies, and we know that that nation was completely wiped out and dispersed by the mighty Assyrian army during uh, their time. And so there was a prophesy coming about that. Um, what had happened is that they had chosen to align themselves with Assyria instead of trusting the Lord. They thought Assyria may protect them um, from their own invasion, but God handed them over to, to judgment. So Isaiah 26 is, uh, if you see Isaiah 28:16, which is quoted in verse 6, Behold, I'm laying a, in Zion a stone, a chosen cornerstone, precious cornerstone, um, it's referring to uh, God's foundation stone, that he's, God's going to do something new. He's going to build something new, and those who trust in it will be secure. And so this Peter is quoting this passage, and he mentions that God carefully chose and God carefully placed this stone in, in Zion. And Isaiah is exhorting the people to build upon the stone who is Yahweh. Don't build upon your trust in foreign nations. Don't trust your own armies. Don't trust that you're just descended from the right people. You know, a lot of the Israelites would say, well, we're descendants of Abraham. So we know we're God's people. We're okay because we came from the right lineage. And God was saying you shouldn't trust any of that. Build your life on him. Build your life on the stone that is Yahweh. So in the same way that the Lord chose the stone in Isaiah, Peter is saying he also chose Christ, that Christ is a fulfillment of that cornerstone laid by God 
and that he is the foundation of the new temple. And Peter is going to go on to emphasize that those who believe in Jesus will not be put to shame, which is a very important thing for them as well, because a lot of those Christians in their persecution are being put to shame because of who they are and what they've chosen to do with their lives in worshiping Christ instead of the pagan gods of the Romans. But God takes the honor which God accorded to Christ and he applies it to those who believe. So in the same way that those who trust in the precious stone of Isaiah 28, 16 will escape judgment, so will those who whose faith is in the cornerstone, which is Christ Jesus. Peter says you'll never be put to shame. If you build your life upon the rock that is Christ, you will never be put to shame. So theologically, Peter is saying that Christ is this centerpiece. He's the foundation of a new temple God is building, a new thing God is doing. And as the church, we center our lives on Christ. We Practically, we build our lives on who Jesus is and what he's done for us. He is the cornerstone of our faith, of our hope, and we are the living stones. And so the, the church, even though then and still now, is subject to times of being dislocation on earth. Sometimes we, as Peter uh, mentions in the very first part, he calls the church elect exiles. He calls them being in dispersion. They practically don't, they don't have a home. They don't fit in in their world anymore, right? <clears throat> and Peter is saying, that may be true, but you're part of something new. You're part of a new building that God is building up and that he is doing. <clears throat> and so uh, that's the first quote. And so the second one in verse 7, uh, Christ is the rejected cornerstone. I'm trying to move quickly here. Christ is the rejected cornerstone. So this is a quote in verse 7. He quotes Psalm 118, verse 22, which is a hymn of salvation. Um, and verses 19 through 21 in that particular psalm refer to um, those who were in exile coming back through the gates of the Lord back into Zion. They're finally back home. Um, they're praising and thanking God because he's answered them, because he's saved them. And the psalmist has suffered. He's been disciplined. He's experienced redemption. But now he's returning to Zion. And as in, as in many times is the case, God's called leaders and prophets were rejected during the Old Testament. David was often rejected. <clears throat> but this passage in, in Psalm, it says that which was once rejected... God will use to be a cornerstone. So not only is Christ the chosen cornerstone, he's also a rejected cornerstone. So in this historical context of the psalm, this stone rejected was the Davidic king. The people often um, and often and often rejected their prophets as well. Foreign nations had uh, rejected the rule of this king. They didn't recognize the rule of the nation of Judah. Um, they didn't recognize the king who had been anointed and established by God. And so Peter is arguing that in light of that, God has now established Christ as the cornerstone of this new spiritual temple, that though God has exalted Christ and honored him by raising him from the dead, many, like they did in the Old Testament, have rejected him. Just as they rejected the prophets, they've also rejected their, their Christ. They've rejected their Messiah. And though God exalted Christ and honored him by raising him from the dead, they rejected him. And so... Uh, Peter says that they will be shamed at the final judgment. So Peter is using this quotation from Psalm 118, 22, to establish that those who believe in Christ will be honored and those who reject him will be judged. And so to be part of the new temple that God is building is to be honored. It's to never be put to shame and it's to be honored and to reject the cornerstone and to build upon a different foundation leads to judgment. So the rejection and the suffering of Jesus was a major theme in the early church um, for, for early uh, Christian preaching. 
Um, the, the suffering of Jesus was a centerpiece of the gospel. You can't talk about the gospel of the Lord Jesus without talking about the suffering of Jesus. The suffering and the rejection of Christ. For Jesus, the builders that rejected him were the Jews. They were the religious leaders of his day. But for First Peter's audience, those who rejected the cornerstone, those who rejected Christ, they are the unbelieving pagan neighbors and the authorities who subjected the church to all kinds of social harassment, persecution. And the readers of this letter were facing very intense times. And so Peter is building towards his argument that this church, the, the church that Christ is building, the living stones that are being built upon the living stone that is Christ, is the new Israel in Christ. And Christ is the cornerstone of a new temple. Not a physical temple, but a church, a living body. And those who rejected the cornerstone were appointed for judgment. And that becomes clearer when we look at verse 8. In verse 8, it refers to Christ is the stone of offense and stumbling. Christ is the stone of offense and stumbling. I have some application points, so we're going to get there here in just a minute. But this is a quote of Isaiah 8.14. In verse 8, he's quoting Isaiah 8.14. So Isaiah 8, following the call, if you read, if you're familiar with Isaiah's book in chapter 6, Isaiah has a very intense encounter with God, right? He's called by God. He's, he has a vision of the throne room of God. He sees God in His glory. He, he, he's in a, what he feels like is the throne room filled with the glory of God. There's angels, there's seraphim. He feels holy and competent to be in the presence of God um, as a sinful man. And he is called. He's called by God to go and to preach to God's people. And he tells them they're not going to listen to you. And so following that call of Isaiah in chapter 6, God sends Isaiah to King Ahaz, who was a very evil king, in chapter 7. And Assyria, again, was a rising threat, but nearer. There, but, but what had happened is that the northern kingdom of Israel and Aram had formed an alliance against Judah. And what Judah and King Ahaz thought they would do to combat that was to form an alliance with Assyria. And this is where Isaiah gives um, also his amazing Emmanuel prophecy in chapter 7, verses 13 through 16. But he's basically, Isaiah was telling Ahaz, don't trust in Assyria. They're going to let you down. Trust in the Lord. He will fight your battles for you. That's kind of a message all throughout the Old Testament that God kept telling the leaders of Israel. Trust God. He'll fight your battles for you. Lean on Him. But they failed to do it. Ahaz did not heed the advice of the prophet, but instead he made an alliance with the king of Assyria, and eventually Assyria indeed um, would come to Judah's aid by destroying Israel and Aram. But in chapter 8, God uses this, this name, Maha Shahal Hazbahaz, to convey to Judah. That was a very hard name for me. I worked on that one for a long time. I want you all to know that. Um, you'll have to go look it up for the spelling because I am not going to go through that. Um, but... God used that name to convey to Judah how Assyria would conquer Israel and Aram because the name, and he told Isaiah to name his child this, and his child prophetically stood, uh, God used Isaiah's child as a prophecy for the people because the name that he gave the child means speeding to the plunder and hurrying to the spoil. So God even had Isaiah name his son this and said that an invasion would happen before that child could say, my father or my mother. Um, but God also, so God used Assyria to judge Israel, but God was also eventually going to judge Judah. Why was that? Why is he going to judge Judah? Because the people have, it says in verse 6 in Isaiah, 
Chapter 8, because the people has refused the waters of Shalom that flow gently, and they rejoice over Rezin and the son of Remaliah. In other words, they're looking at their brothers, whom they should love, in the north, who've been destroyed, who've been wiped out by Assyria, and instead of lamenting it, they're rejoicing over it. And God does not take too kindly to that. Judah mocked Israel, their brother, in defeat, and like the conquered Israel, Assyria would also sweep into Judah, reaching even to the neck and its outspread wings would fill the breadth of your land. That's what it says in verse 8. So Jerusalem was spared, but only because God was with them. So eventually, so, so they were spared from Assyria for a period of time, Judah was, but eventually we know that history tells us Babylon would sweep in and destroy Judah. And so the, the Lord was showing his people that only he was to be feared and held in awe. So those who feared the Lord, he would be a sanctuary to them. Here's where our quote comes in. But for the rest of Israel and Judah, for those who did not fear him, he would be a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling. A stone of offense and a rock of stumbling. So Peter does not quote, again, the entirety of verse 14. He only quotes the negative portion, that those who reject, those who do not fear the Lord, would be a st- he would be a stone of offense to them and a rock of stumbling. So um, Peter is establishing this link between verses 7 and 8. He's establishing that Jesus Christ is the only means of salvation and the only one by whom we can be saved, but he's also the only one by whom you, if you don't trust him, you will be judged. Those who stumble do so because of their disobedience. And so there's two points on Peter's usage here, just to wrap up this usage of the stone passages. First, it's clear that Peter is using these stone passages to indicate that there's only two groups of people. And he's telling this to the church. There's only two groups of people. Those who believe in the stone, those who believe in Christ the cornerstone, and are never put to shame, and those who reject him stumble over him, and view the cross with offense. There's only two groups. Therefore, those who reject him and view him offensively will be judged. They will be put to shame. And to Peter, Christ the cornerstone, and the people's response to him is the standard by which everyone will be judged. And it's true today, right? Peter's assessment of that whole thing is true today. There's only two groups of people in the world. Those who who have trusted Christ as their cornerstone who have built their lives upon Him and the work that He's done for them and who have trusted Him for their salvation and those who have rejected the cornerstone, stumbled over Him, um, been offended by the cross, have walked away and built their lives on something else and will face judgment one day. There's only two groups of people. And the second thing that we should see is that Peter is using this passage in verse 8 to affirm God's sovereignty. Christ is the stone of offense and stumbling. It was foreordained. God is sovereign over the destiny of those who reject His Son. God declared that Christ would suffer and that God anticipated that suffering. He predicted the rejection of Jesus as well as the triumph of Jesus. So Christ in His rejection and in His triumph, He's fulfilling Isaiah 8, 14. He was a sanctuary for those who believe in Him and He was a stone of offense and stumbling for those who rejected Him. So both of those are upheld. So the last point, point three here, before we get to the applications, is the church is the new people of God. We'll wrap up verses 9 and 10 very quickly, even though there's a lot more to go here. Verses 9 and 10, Peter, he diverts the focus away from the unbelieving to the believing once again. And he affirms, through the use of several Old Testament quotations and allusions here, I've only given you three. Peter uses way more than three Old Testament references. I've only given you three. But he uses a lot more... Think about, think about it. Look at the language that Peter uses to describe the church. It's the same language that Moses used, the prophets used, to describe the nation of Israel and the people of God in the Old Testament. A chosen race, royal priesthood, a holy nation, people for his own possession, 
that you may proclaim the excellencies of him. And if you scroll down, it looks it says that you were you are those who have received mercy. You once were not a people. Verse 10 is a reference to Hosea. You were once not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. If you'll remember, Hosea was told to marry a prostitute named Gomer. Gomer, they, they got married. Gomer left him for other men. He had to go rescue her, had to bring her back. They had two children. God used, he named those two children. One of those children was named No Mercy. The other child was named Not My People. And God used those two children to proclaim to his people that this is who they now were because they rejected him. They are no longer his people and he will no longer show them mercy. But he held out hope because he would eventually show them mercy. And Peter is saying that that Christ not only fulfills Isaiah's and the Psalm stone passages, but he also fulfills Hosea in saying that he has now reunited people and he has brought the church together. These people who were once not the people of God, referring to the Gentiles, are now the people of God. These people who had once not received mercy have now received mercy. All this happens because of Christ. Therefore, the church that's built upon the foundation of Jesus is to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against their souls and to live honorably before the world in such a way that God is glorified in the day of judgment. So three quick points of application here. So there's really only three. So Peter is using these Old Testament quotations and allusions to remind the church of who they are in Christ. And it should remind us of who we are in Christ because our situation as the church of God has not changed much as the church was back then. We don't face the same kind of sufferings and the same kind of mockery and the same type of persecutions that they do. But if you belong to Jesus, you're going to face some of them on some level. And in different parts of the world, the church suffers in, in immense ways. But Peter is using these Old Testament quotations and allusions to remind the church of who they are in Jesus. They're dispersed throughout the world. They're hated. They're scoffed at. They're offensive. And they're persecuted from all sides. But Christ is their cornerstone. He's their foundation. They're built upon Him. And that cornerstone, when God levels the world and judges the world and everything burns, there's only one thing that's going to be left. Only one building that's going to be left when God does that, when God brings judgment. It's the building that was built upon the cornerstone and the rock of Jesus Christ. They will not be put to shame. So three quick application points. And I don't have to come up with them because Peter gives them to us. In verse 9, Peter says, Because of all this, proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. So we're to proclaim Him. Proclaim His worth. Proclaim His excellence. The world will hate it, but some will hear it and some will receive it. So proclaim the gospel. The second thing he tells us to do is as sojourners and as exiles abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. So in light of who Christ is and in light of who we are, Peter calls for us to not give in to the temptation to fall back. Right? When the world is pressing in and mocking and scoffing for building your life upon the gospel of the Lord Jesus, Peter says, don't give up. Don't give in. That's the easy thing to do. But our lives are built upon the beautiful truth of the, of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We ought not apologize for that. To give in is to wage war with your own soul. That's, that's an interesting way that Peter says, to try to fall back, you wage war with yourself. God is making you something new. So to go back to your old life is to put yourself at war with yourself. You can't do that and, and be confident in it anymore. We're not of those who turn back. We abstain from the world and we... When the world says to indulge, we don't because we're built upon the cornerstone of Jesus. And then the third thing Peter says to do, and this is um, found in the last verse, 12, 
Keep your conduct honorable among the Gentiles so that when they speak against you, they may see your good deeds and glorify God. So the world may speak against the church. That's a given. But we're, we aren't at war with the world, right? We may live in enemy-occupied territory, but we aren't to treat those on the outside as enemies. Peter says to treat them honorably. We're also to treat each other honorably. Our good deeds to the world and to each other point towards God and glorify Him. So Peter is saying that the way that we treat each other, the way that the church treats each other, the honorable way that we treat each other is a reflection on the Lord Jesus. So the questions we must ask ourselves on that is how are we representing Him? Are we known as honorable people? And does our house reflect that we're built on the right foundation, the cornerstone of the Lord Jesus? So I exhort you, along with Peter, don't forget who you are. You're a living stone built upon the foundation of the one and only living stone, the cornerstone, the chosen cornerstone, rejected by the world, but the very foundation of our hope and the very hope of the world, Jesus Christ. We're built upon that, and we should rest our hope in that tonight. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for tonight. We thank you for all you do for us. We thank you for Jesus being our cornerstone, once rejected by the world, still rejected by the world, but embraced by um, you precious to you. So thank you for calling us out of darkness into your marvelous light, for showing us the truth about who Jesus was, for leading us to repentance so that we may build our house, our spiritual house, upon the foundation that is Jesus Christ. Thank you for all that he is for us. Thank you for the salvation that comes only in knowing him. We pray for those who do not know him, those who do reject him, that you would open their eyes so that they may see the beauty of who he is, receive the gospel into their own hearts, Trust Him for salvation and build their life as well upon the cornerstone that is Christ. And so we thank You for these truths. Help us to go throughout this next week as we honor You and live honorably among the world um, during these times. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.